out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. There you go. Nice, wise words from Jim. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Always bringing you the finest in indie pop from that golden decade and beyond sometimes and even before. But this week's special guest is going to be all the way from Coventry. It's Paul Court, he of the Primitives. Yes, the legendary Primitives, who waved, who waved, who ruled the uh, airwaves throughout the 80s and into the 90s. This is the interview and... uh, this is the first part after I'd sort of been babbling about this and that. Um, yes, to talk about those early years and the fact that the primitives were right there in the world that was indie pop that I put down in between the years of 83 to 87. I say that in all my interviews, by the way. It's nothing exciting. But anyway, this is Paul's response. Paul, save me before the listener gets bored. I guess so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it didn't feel like that at the time. We were just a band trying to you know get things done for ourselves and um not really noticing that there was i guess you know retrospectively you can see that there was a scene there but at the time it didn't really feel so much like that yes and so just roughly is it possible to give us a bit of a background to your own kind of musical world because obviously you know you were in the band from sort of the the almost kind of early to mid 80s but before that when you were growing up were you sort of into playing in bands and music then and sort of learning to play the guitar yeah I was in a band um when I was 16 or 17 and that sort of stopped not soon after that and um I thought that was the end of it really for like being in a band so um and then I met these chaps on a bus in 1984 and that was the um you know, the very first version of this band, so... Right. And did it... Because um, a lot of bands I've, I've interviewed have, have this great five-year narrative, especially in the 80s. Well, part of it is kind of, you know, having unemployment, you know, or being able to have the unemployment benefit or job seekers yeah. allowance or enterprise allowance seem to sort of give that's, people that's almost right, a... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we that. Oh, right. <laughs> we didn't realise it, because we kept quiet about it because we were a bit embarrassed because it uh, seemed a bit sort of conformist or something, you know, and then... Um, Later on, you find out, oh, they're all on it. You know, it's yes. a way of, it meant you could, um, you got about 10 quid extra a week, but also um, you didn't have to sign on. So, you know, you could um, go off on tour and things. Yeah, well, that, I mean, it was kind of bizarrely brilliant because it was almost like having a, an official grant for a degree. If you, were, yeah. you know, if you were using it well, which I guess no one knows at the time if they're thinking they're using it well, but for a lot of people, I remember, you had to have a, a thousand pound, didn't you? Yeah, we didn't have that. Our manager put a thousand pound in our, each of our bank accounts for that week. And then she'd back as <laughs> we'd go on the course here. Yeah. Which is always yeah. quite brilliant and strange because, in a way, you saw like going for unemployment, which I can't remember, it was about 30 pounds a week, but you had housing yeah. benefit and stuff. And suddenly I said, You need to have a thousand pounds in your account. I know, where would you get that from? I and, and mysteriously, everyone, oh, yes, by the way, I've got a thousand now. Yeah. You yeah. know, no one sort of questioned it, which looking back on it was yeah. quite. Quite interesting, really. But yes, it just meant that uh, the, the government at the time was able to say, look, unemployment's going down. But it also gave exactly, a lot yeah. of people the opportunity to be a full-time musician for that period. And because there wasn't a huge amount on um, and happening, in a way, there wasn't that kind of like, I might go and get a job as well, or I'll go and get a job. It was like there was just nothing going on. So it was kind of 
kind of good for the creative industries that during that period for those who decided that, that music was going to be their thing. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a lot of people around trying to do things back then um, that didn't have jobs. So, yeah, yeah. Yes. And did you get a kind of a sound and the band kind of going in the direction it sort of eventually, you know, you sort of, you know, sort of went, yes, this is it. We've got something here. Yeah, well, for the first year, we had a male singer, and the, the kind of thing we were doing was more like um, sort of birthday party or the Free Johns or fairy things, um, cramps, you know, these, it was this kind of area. And, yes. um, and then when Tracy came along, we realised it wasn't really going to work like that, and we quickly put together some, you know, what you want to call pop songs, I guess, and then went into the studio quite soon after she joined and um as soon as we heard her kind of double tracked voice on these kind of very simplistic noisy little songs we thought yeah well this is something that we can move forward with you know yes because you were initially on the famous i say it's famous um the lazy was it the lazy records yeah well that was our label yeah that was um it was just us on that to start with yeah right my God, I didn't know that was your label. I should have done my research. Yeah. Well, it was the song was Lazy. It was one of the songs on the first record, and I think it was going to be called Head Records. And then our manager found out that someone else had already had that, so he just looked at the song titles and go, oh, call it Lazy then. <laughs> so that came about. That's a classic. Because cause obviously, you know, I sort of, I mean, you know, not to give too much away, but anyway... I'm in my mid-50s, so I can remember sort of that, those early days of Top of the Pops, you know, listening to David Bowie's Space Oddity in 75 time. And then yeah. my second single was probably Denis Denis by uh, Blondie. And, okay. and um, actually, it wasn't. It was Rod Stewart sailing, actually. But yeah, right. I've slightly skipped that, the, didn't I? The whack, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just remembered. We've I just all got l- those ones that we kind of think, I'll oh, just say your mum bought that one. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really, I thought sailing was an amazing, powerful yeah. song, and I loved it at the time. Right, yeah. I even I even loved the B-side. But then I saw, um, obviously, Debbie Harry and was like, oh, my God, I must go and buy Denis as well. So did you, when, you know, were you growing up with those kind of similar, you know, kind of musical and cultural influences? Well, well I wasn't really that interested in Blondie, apart from um, they were just a kind of reliable pop band that would put out great records, you know. There's a lot of groups around like that, but they weren't the ones that I was particularly listening to. I'd glad to hit that they were on the radio and things like this. I yeah. think, obviously, Tracy was more of a fan of, uh, of that. I mean, I, I, later on, I realised how great they were, you know, and how um, innovative and kind of, you know, the pop genius of the whole thing. But at the time, it was just kind of uh, good songs on the radio. And that was it yes. For me. Well, absolutely. Did you, I mean, were you growing up in that world that was kind of glam and then slipped into punk? You know, yeah, you, yeah. Was that, that was my you know, T-Rex and everything like this on top of the Pops and Sparks. Yes. And Mud, I used to like Mud when I was a kid, you know, that band. Oh, um, God, I remember Tiger Feet so well. Well, that was my first record, I think, yeah. Fantastic, well, which is good, but I've, you know. Actually, it was T-Rex, New York City, but I think my mum bought me Tiger Feet and I went into a shop and actually paid for a New York City by T-Rex. But, uh, yes. Yeah, well, so, know- yeah, that era, you know, and then obviously it went a bit crap around about 1976. It got a bit like, you know, the Eagles and... Just like nothingness, really. Yes. And, and then, then Punk came along, so yeah. And I was into the Beatles as well about that time, so that was a bit of a contradiction because you weren't supposed to like the Beatles if you were into Punk, but um, 
they kind of seemed okay together to me. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were quite a good band. But did well, I remember growing up and, and sort of, because there wasn't a lot on telly, there was three channels, and I remember watching the Beatles films in the probably the yeah. late 60s, early 70s, and being kind of mesmerised. And my brother owned a copy of Sgt Pepper, and I remember sort of, you know, going, and he wouldn't let me play his records because... He was a bit nerdy like that. And I used to sort of go when he wasn't in, when he was at school, and play Sergeant Pepper and the okay. Elton John Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And this was kind right, of early, yeah, yeah. the early 70s and being kind of yeah. like amazed by that, you know, because it was like, for you know, like I shouldn't have been listened to. Well, especially with him, because he was very possessive about his record collection. It wasn't a very big one, by the way. You know, it was quite small at the time. And then he got into prog rock and I sort of followed him, you know, because I thought he was fantastic and had great taste. Little did I know yeah. that that was a disaster, really. But um, I went there. It was fine. So then were you, so did you, you know, start having guitar lessons and sort of going, right, I can, I know how to do chords? No, I didn't have guitar lessons. I had a guitar that just sat around out of tune for a few years and then, um, I had this book, um, Lou Reed, Words and Music, and it had a couple of Velvet Underground songs in there. And um, so I tuned my guitar up and learned how to play Waiting for the Man. Wow. And that was it, really. I mean, I was just amazed when I did D and G, and I thought, oh, yeah, I can see how you could sing the song over this. Yeah, I see how it works now. Wow, that was that was your yeah. moment. That was that was fantastic. And then, you know, as you know, because no one probably realises at the time when you start playing and making a sound that it's going to go anywhere. But obviously John Peel was one of those great kind of gatekeepers at that time. So getting him, you know, playing your stuff must have felt like a moment that you thought, wow, this is really exciting. Well, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. I mean, um, we were amazed that, um, I mean, it was it was Lazy Records, but I think it was uh, distributed by Rough Trade. So they kind of took us under their kind of umbrella. And so even that was, you know amazing for us and yes. obviously um yeah john peel started playing it uh, andy kershaw had his show on radio one at night time then and he was sort of championist as well yes and at the same time i mean it was kind of quite an exciting period for us pop fans because we'd had there was a band called the photos that no one's really heard of but yeah i remember the photos but they wendy were fa- Wu. <laughs> wendy Wu, yes yeah they had one great album well, probably, yes. And um, and then you, you know, then we sort of kind of started to get sort of people like, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it. And then the Darling Buds. So for us pop fans, seeing the Primitives and then the Darling Buds was kind of, um, yeah, an exciting yeah. period. Were you sort of aware of that kind of indie scene that was kind of quickly developing for those that particular period? Not really. To me, it just felt like um, there was a handful of bands that, it was, it was almost like the Jesus and Mary chain had forged a path and there was sort of a few bands trying to follow along behind somehow, you know? Yeah. So there's, that, there's a shop assistants as well that were... Um, God, they were brilliant. And they were just before us, I think, but it was a similar thing, you know? And yes. It all seemed like it was kind of... Because before that, it had been kind of goth, I think. It had been that kind of and more chanty kind of stuff, you know? And suddenly you could be... You could go back to the kind of all the 60s stuff that you remember hearing when they played up on the radio in the 70s when you were a kid. So it was, it was putting a bit of that into it, but, you know, having the sort of the punk element as well. Yes, because then it was one of those programmes. Was it Friday Night Live or with, with Ben Alton? And, um, yeah. And you performed on it, didn't you? Crap. We on that, yeah, yeah. And then you must have... Was it a bit of a shock how how you suddenly 
like a rocket took off and, and sort of hit that kind of chart success? Kind of, yeah. I mean, we, we'd done the indie thing for like uh, three years and it was we were kind of going a bit out of favour, you know. And, um, and then we signed to a major label and you kind of think, well, this could be a complete disaster, but let's just see what happens, you know. And, um, and the record got released and uh, it just started selling. And, you know, the next thing you know, it's, you know, you're on loads of TV programmes and things and climbed up the chart as well, which was like a proper old fashioned hit, you know, we kind of week by week it, uh, it went up. Yes, get it. Because I do remember, I did see you live at the UEA in Norwich back in that yeah. back p- particular period. And it was the only time when I drove up and parked that actually, as I got out of the car, someone came up to me and said, have you got a ticket? And I thought, well, wait a minute, I haven't even got out to my car. So there was a real frenzy about the band at that kind of time, wasn't there? I think so, yeah. I mean, we were selling out and shows and stuff. So, yeah, I mean... You know, two nights at the Tanning Country Club, well, the Forum as it is now. Yes. Was it the way around? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, it certainly was a um, a big leap up from the previous year. Yes. And how was the band coping, kind of dynamically? Because obviously, you know, speaking to a few people, there, there's a kind of like dealing with that kind of moment where things are starting to get a bit excitable, and then there's a kind of sometimes the lack of a manager to sort of give any guidance. Were you able? To, had you got enough in place to sort of navigate that period? Yeah, I mean, we were looked after. We had management, and um, you know. A and R man and stuff. I mean, we, to be honest, we just kind of um, when it got really busy in like 1988, it was just literally going from day to day and um, just seeing what was happening that day, or maybe it's you know some insight into what might be happening the following week. But we, I mean, looking back, I kind of wish we'd kind of stepped aside for a minute and looked at the bigger picture, and you know, we might have been able to handle it a little bit better than we did, yeah, or put ourselves across in a better way because you know. But uh, you just kind of get lost in it, really. Yes. Well, I would imagine the speed of it, because because being a bit obsessed with David Bowie, just a bit, you know, I realised that his whole 60s period was him sort of trying and sort of not really getting anywhere. And it did take him a long time before, you know, certain things started to happen, you know. So he did have that kind of grounding of five years of kind of rejection and making some pretty... So I lost you for a minute there. You just, you just got, I just got the David Bowie... Oh, yes, I was just saying, with <laughs> David, people like David Bowie, he had spent the yeah. 60s, you know, a good five years kind of trying and slightly failing with some sort of pretty hit and miss kind of material before he hit it. Yeah. So that was kind of quite a long period of time of him really persevering, whereas actually with you and quite a few bands I spoke to, you know, it was like, OK, it was like probably 12 months or 18 months, and then suddenly that John Peel play, a John Peel session, then that first album, but it's quite quick, you know. I just wondered, you know, looking back on it, as you said, you could have stepped aside. I just wondered, you know, that, that kind of speed of success must sometimes feel a bit tricky at the time. Yeah, I mean, we didn't... Um... We certainly didn't scheme that much. I mean, we were always say we were like ske- uh, dreamers, not schemers. You know, we were kind of, and I think you've got to to do it really, really well. You know, you have to kind of uh, be a bit more contrived than we were. I think. Yes. Uh, and you know, talking about you know, David Bowie, obviously he had all these different guises and his different uh, characters, and if one didn't work, he started again. You know, well, and even when he was even as a successful artist, he was doing that. You know, so. Well, absolutely. He he didn't stop doing that. And then 
Because the one thing that sort of uh, obviously a lot of bands going to have that five years where they've sort of have the tricky second album. And if anybody ever does the American tour, they come back kind of broken. But the other thing that I've noticed that bands struggled with, especially the ones I've spoke to, is is kind of the music in uh, the music kind of landscape changing in in a way that you know the indie world had. I put the indie world down at 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths. And then yeah. after that, things start to change quite a bit because the whole dance world started. And and I suppose, you know, the people like me, not exactly, you know, well, slightly similar, you know, start, you know, have other commitments other than buying the NME and recording John Peel every day and then sort of being obsessed with bands. You know, you have other lives and other commitments and other kind of needs. So, you know, like, being growing up and trying to get a house together. So sometimes, you know, yeah. you know, the record buying public kind of have changed a bit and suddenly it's kind of worrying about mortgage or rent and all that kind of malarkey. And and I just wondered how you started to cope when, you know, some bands like the Soup Dragons and the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses kind of got well and truly into dance. But did you sort of find yourself thinking, oh, blimey, this is a bit of a number? Um, no, not really, because, we, I mean... We were so busy around that period with just touring abroad and things. So, and I mean, when the Manchester thing happened, it, it didn't, you know, it felt like they were taking cues from a lot of the things that, that we had from the 60s and things. So it wasn't kind of, you know, it wasn't like sort of uh, suddenly heavy metal was the thing or. Yes. You know, it, it felt, it didn't feel like, it felt like a sort of progression really. Yeah, I just wondered if you, when you were rehearsing, saying, shall we try and do something which is a bit more ecstasy-fueled kind of vibe? <laughs> I don't know. Well, we did do this single called Sick of It, and it was before the, uh, you know, the Manchester stuff took centre stage, and that took a little bit of influence from the, some of the dance stuff in the top 40 at the time. Yes. You know, the kind of rhythm of it, because before that we were always very kind of solid, you know, four beats to the bar, kind of. But this had a bit of shuffle and a bit of skippity hi-hat stuff going on, you know. <laughs> bit, a bit more rhythmic kind of diversity in there or something, I don't know. But, um, yeah. And then uh, later on we did, um, I think, Galore. Might have had a few little breaky beat type things going on. So, you know, it wasn't... Um, we didn't really want to jump on the bandwagon like some bands did, but, um, you know, it's... Um, it's certainly, uh, I think one of the things about that, the the Manchester thing was it was very, um, well, there wasn't a lot of sort of upfront female involvement. No. Which didn't, you know, for us to progress in a world like that, it wasn't particularly helpful, but... Um, yeah. And the other thing that, that sort of I hadn't appreciated is is the famous click track. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I just, I just, I'd watched the George Best... Um, George Best, the wedding present film, you know, with uh, George yeah. Best and the famous click track. And I spoke to a few drummers, um, the member of the go-betweens, Lindy Morrison, I think, yes, that's it, Lindy, and also the um, the Moodist as well, oh, um, yeah. Claire. And, and, you know, they were talking about the dreaded click track and producers yeah. wanting this. How did you cope with those kind of moments of production and, and uh, the producer in the studio and sort of people especially record labels thinking you've got to get the click track absolutely right because it seemed to be an area of great creative tension for a lot of bands yeah but, i don't know when it started with the click track if i can't imagine if bands in the 70s did it or not i don't know the, the thing with the click track is it's just if your drummer can play that tight then he just plays along to a, a click yes 
And um, yeah, I guess the point of it nowadays would be that you can you can take a part of a song and put it somewhere else, and it'll be in time still. You know. Mm. So, but we always used a click for pretty much around that later eighties kind of period. Yeah. Um, not all the time. We did some stuff with uh, an American producer, Craig Leon, and uh, he didn't use a click. Um, you can't really tell. I mean, it just you know, it's, all, it's all in time and things, but... Yes. Yeah. And did you all, you know, because I know from various people who I spoke to, you know, that working with a producer is, is quite an interesting... It's a bit like going on a blind date, but even more so, because you've got to put an album together. Has, did that recording process always work out for you, or did you have moments where it was a bit tricky? We mostly worked with a guy called Paul Sampson in Coventry and a few other places, but he was there from from the start, almost the fifth member of the band in a lot of ways. I mean, he played bass with us on a few tours. Um, and then we worked with Ian Brody and this uh, Craig Leon, and they, that was all good. I mean, there's a couple where we might have done something that was a waste of time, but mostly, you know, when we did go off with other producers, it, it was always kind of fun, really, and... Good yes. experience. Excellent. And then, because then we had the dance and then we had grunge. Did that, were you sort of thinking, oh my God, look at that, the Pixies, Nirvana, the Sonic Youth, the Sonic Youth, Sonic Youth, the butthole surface. Did, were you kind of thinking when you were looking at that sort of wave of, of kind of bands happening, did that sort of make it make anybody in the band think, God, what should we do next? Um, no, not really. I think, I think when that, well, I mean, Sonic Youth were around in, when we first yes, were around, true, we used to like, listen to them. But, um, yeah, I mean, um, obviously the Grunge, that'd be early 90s or something. Or, yes. I mean, we were kind of doing our last album and we were probably knew it was over anyway. So it was kind of, um, you know, and that was American as well. So it was, um, I, mean, I quite liked it in a way because... Uh, you know, I got a bit tired of this sort of shoegaze thing, really. It's so apathetic, you know. <laughs> so it's nice to have sort of a bit of kick up the arse. Yes. In uh, America, you know. And when you were doing Galore, which was the your last, your third studio album, were you aware during that process that the band, this was kind of going to be, to quote Jim Morris, in the end? No, not at all, because... Um, I mean, we had a, a song on there that was a co-write with Ian. It was called You Are The Way. And um, it's probably one of the best things we've done. And we did think it would be a hit. Um, what happened was uh, the label, for some reason, um, they delayed the album for a year, the release of it. So um, you know, by the time he came back in, we did it in 1990. And then it came out sometime in 91. And Pure had been out in 89. So it kind of felt like a comeback. Um, and I think quite a bit of interest had been lost in the band. So no, when we were doing it, we thought, uh, you know, we, we've got a fairly good hit on our hands here, you know, uh, with that song. But yes, alas, alas, pick peaked at number fifty-five or something. Didn't get the airplay, you see. So I mean, because people don't get to hear something, you know. It's like you can't these days. You've got the internet, but back then it was just radio. So. It was, there was a limited, I mean, the gatekeepers at that time were so important, the, you know, the John Peel show or the music papers, and obviously you had daytime radio with Steve Wright and Bruno Brooks, but that's kind of a yeah. whole other world, <laughs> who knows how that worked. Mm -hmm. But yes, I could imagine, you know, the NME, the Melody Maker and, and John Peel being, and Janice Long probably being so incredibly important for anybody who 
wanted to get that next step. But did you then feel, because obviously we had Britpop coming along, God, I know my music history, don't I? (laughs) Did you think, oh my God, that should have been us? It seemed closer to what we had done than the other things, uh, you know, the other um, scenes that had come along. But um, I think if we'd have been around at that time, we'd have got lost in it all maybe. So it's uh, nice to have been a, you know, bit more of an individual band on, in, our, in our own terms. Yes, I just was... We were successful. Because a lot of the bands that must have been hitting Britpop and being on stage from Elastica to um, Sleeper, they must have seen the Primitives. You know, the Primitives must have... You know, they must have all been to your gigs and thought, yeah. my God, we love that band. That could be our... Oh, it is us. We're on top of the pops. Yeah, I assume so, yeah. I mean, at the time, you just think when you've done your thing, you've gone and you're, you're forgotten about it. You don't imagine these... But then, of course, you think, well, when I was their age, I saw you know, the Smiths or the Bunnymen on top of the Pops. and Yes. That. Um, but, I mean, I think with those bands as well, they, um, I mean, when we started out, we, you know, success to us meant a John Peel session and half a page in the NME, you know. Yeah. <laughs> to start with, whereas those bands had that. They'd seen the Manchester bands getting in the charts. They'd seen us getting in the charts. I think they were... From the off, they were kind of all about being successful in that, you know, that type of way. Yes. So did you then have a moment where you all sat down and just said, this is, yes, shall we just, we've, we're all thinking it, shall we just say that's the end? Or did you just not turn up at a practice? No, we did, we just, we did sit down and just say, let's uh, call it a day. I mean, we were in a, we'd been doing some recording and uh, um, we just thought I was, Jack in. We'd, we'd done this kind of, um, we had this kind of secret band going called Star Power, and um, we'd, we'd released a few records, and people didn't know it was the Primitives, and they'd, we'd been getting airplay and stuff from Nighttime Radio One. So that was a bit of fun towards the end, but it, we thought that might go somewhere, but that kind of, I think as soon as they knew it was the Primitives, you know, the music press lost interest. So. God, that's so annoying. So then, did you, I mean, as a sort of, did you sort of have a moment of of, of six months sort of wandering the streets thinking, God, that, what, what, what happens now? Return to Civvy Street. <laughs> yes, because I No, think... um, we'd, we'd still, we were still doing things between us um, up to about 94, really. Right. And, and gigging a little bit as well, but... It, I can't really remember that time that well because it was so rubbish. You know, it was just such a kind of... Having been what we'd done, what we'd done, and then, you know, you're kind of playing in a pub in town and stuff, it's kind of... I mean, really, it really stopped around about the mid-'90s. That's when, for me, I I put my guitar in the case and didn't touch it for 10 years or something, you know. Yes. So that was, uh, you know... And did you then hit City Street or did you manage to sort of... Or did you just kind of go youth hostling? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, no, we didn't, we didn't do anything like that. No, just kind of, uh, no, I just because we've gone to a bit of art and stuff and things like this, but um, yes, graphic design and uh, yeah, yeah, and so then what was the kind of moment? That, that sort of brought you back together? Because I remember, there was a sort of a member of James who said that at the height of their, you know, their success during that period, which I think was the sort of 90s, they were sitting around, I don't know, a swimming pool, 
in Spain and they said, oh, look, we all hate each other. Can we just jack this in? And everyone went, yep, that's great. And then they all just, you know, felt great relief. And, and then about 10 years later, obviously realised that they, their lives were missing something and probably financially they were as well. So they, they sort of came back together. But then I probably had banned, banned therapy and decided they needed to sort out how, how to sort of navigate the next period and the next chapter of James. So how did, how did you all sort of, you know, come back, come, come about? Well, we hadn't seen each other for quite a while, and uh, um, uh, 2009, we heard uh, Steve, our original bass player, had died, so we actually kind of met up again at his funeral. Um, and then later that year, we we did this show, it was at the, uh, the, the museum in Coventry, where they were having an exhibition of Adam, local, the local music scene from, you know, way back when. Um, and that was it, really. That's how we started again. We just we did this one show, and then we did one in London the following week. But um, we'd never fallen out, you see. So there was there was none of that kind of you say the sort of therapy session trying to <laughs> iron out sort of problems or anything. It was um, no, it was fine, you know. Yes, because I always remember a member of um, member of Jefferson Airplane saying that when they were forming the band. He said, I really want a female singer because it will just kind of help the dynamics. Did it? Was that quite similar with the Primitives, having Tracy in the band as well? You know, just kind of rather than four or five blokes, it was like, actually, we've got, we can't. Well, no, we wanted to be uh, the sort of four or five blokes, you see. Because we, we had the male singer before, Kieran, and um, we kind of wanted the kind of Nick Cave, looks interior, Iggy Pop sort of front person, you know. Yes. And we couldn't get that. I mean, especially if you live in Coventry, you know, where are you going to find someone like that? So um, <laughs> Tracy came along and then, as I say, we kind of uh, just tried out a sort of few ideas and it, within a couple of weeks, as I was saying earlier, it kind of it gelled, you know, so... Yes. Yeah. And then, and and mostly with the kind of, not the original, but the kind of the, the line-up that was in from Galore, wasn't it? Yeah. So when so when when you started playing again, did it all feel like God? Actually, did you need that break to then to sort of and space and doing other things to sort of come back and really appreciate what you had? Um, perhaps, yeah. I mean, I didn't really think about it that much. Um, I had thought in two thousand and eight about because that would have been twenty years since the debut album and crashing all that a lot so that was the only time it crossed my mind to maybe play again you know and then I heard that Tracy was living in Argentina so I forgot about that idea so and then yeah. she was back in she was back in England the following year and that was when we heard about Steve and things so um but uh yeah I mean it was odd playing together for the first time you know it was odd playing the songs again at first yes but it was all still in there you know we still we could still recall it all and uh you know, and after a while, the you know the music's alive again, so you kind of just locked in with it, kind of thing. So obviously, that was kind of you know when you did, did those dates, that was your sort of back catalogue. Did you? When was the moment when you when you thought as a band, actually, shall we try and do a new do some new material? Um, pretty soon, I think. I think we recorded in two thousand and nine the. The first record we put out before Tuna Pop, um, yeah, we just 
just had a couple of ideas so we went in the studio and did those we didn't think we would do any any more than that um and then of course we did, we did the covers album and then we've done a few eps and then spinorama was a album of new songs so um but that was never on the cards when we got back together we literally just thought we'll do three gigs well you know we didn't think we'd go on tour or anything like this yes yeah. so has the band now become sort of almost like a solid part-time kind of career. I don't know. Well, it, it has been that, yeah. I mean, we, it, it, you know, apart from right now, we've actually got nothing planned for the future, which is the first time that's happened in 10 years since we've been back together, because normally when we've done a gig, you know, there's one in the pipeline. But at the minute, we've just got a kind of clean diary. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, because obviously you've you've sort of been not just playing gigs in this country, but going abroad. So that was that was that kind of amazing, sort of finding your old fans from sort of the Far East and beyond? Yeah, well, we played in Japan um, five years ago, and um, and then we played there this year, and it, it seemed like they were, we had like a load of new fans because there was, uh, I think the first time we played, well, five years ago when we played, um, they seemed to be older, whereas this time there was that age but kind of people that would have been too young five years ago so yeah I mean you go abroad and you do have uh, tends to be people around about our age when we play in the UK and you know yes a couple of young uh, some, some younger faces but um I don't know you go abroad and it seems uh yeah there's, there's, there are younger fans I know because I was talking to Paul from the Wild Swans and he seems to have gotten a huge following in the Philippines, which he's a bit okay. surprised by, but he has to go there and play gigs occasionally. Right, well, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he's so popular, you know, in the Philippines. I think, OK, I better go and do that then. Well, I think we've sold a few T-shirts to them, so uh, we haven't been over there then. Yes. Oh, talking of T-shirts, what was it like when Morrissey suddenly turned up? I mean, everyone must ask this question. <laughs> Sorry. You know, the Morrissey moment when him wearing a primitive T-shirt. Yeah, well... <laughs> I think he came to see us. We were actually playing with James, um, which was one of his, well, they were his, his friends, weren't they? So um, yes, we were supporting them, and um, and then someone said, "Oh, Morris has asked for all your um, back catalogue and some t-shirts, or it was just the records." I think I heard he asked for, but uh, yeah, I can't remember when I first saw that picture. There was quite quite a few pictures of him wearing uh, the uh, "Stop Killing Me" t-shirt around that time. Yes, and we still sell that one, obviously probably on the back of that I guess yeah so then so then obviously you're up to the current time so do you you know as an artist are you sitting there sort of starting to think of new material or sort of potential future kind of kind of events or gigs for the next decade not the next decade but um certainly looking towards doing things next year I don't think we're gonna we've got no plans to record anymore but um I think there's going to be uh, some big compilation thing coming out of the primitives um, sometime early next year. Yes. So I've been involved with putting that together at the minute, and that's got a few uh, unreleased things from back in the day. Because that's one thing that I've noticed when speaking to people is that um, that moment where where you think, actually, I really want to archive everything just in case, you know, just because it's kind of peace of mind. So have you been sort of doing a similar thing of going through the attic and going, oh, my God, I must get this and oh, this B-side or this kind of unreleased demo? Well, get those, get them released. Well, yeah, or sort of at least, you know, I don't know, archived or digitised. Oh, I've got, 
Well, I haven't got. Um, there must be lots of demos we did for, um, you know, RCA or BMG, but I haven't got any of those. Yeah. We have found a few things in the vaults, you know, that we recorded that haven't been out before. So, um, yeah. Yes, it's an it's an, it's a tricky world. And when you sort of obviously, you know, you must get aware, you must be aware that. Um, well, one thing I've noticed that often kind of a period of time, and sometimes it's about thirty years, but in your case, it's not quite that long. I know it is actually. You know, that, that passing of time where you suddenly look at something and think, oh my God, that's fantastic. Because I remember last year there was two books that came out in sort of about indie fanzines and punk fanzines. And it's like, I'm sure that people weren't that interested until quite recently where they suddenly went, my God, this is fantastic. We need to archive it and write a, you know, a sort of an academic book by a professor from a university. Oh, yeah. yeah. So do you, do you sort of also have that same feeling when you sort of look back at your stuff that, um, you know, I'm not saying you're going to have one of those exhibitions at the V&A, like David Bowie or one of them or Pink Floyd, but do you sort of also look at, you know, your gear and think, actually, we really could do with just archiving this in some some way? Because I know some people have done books and some people have even done a film. I just wondered if there's been ever those, those kind of ideas with you and the primitives. Well, as I say, there's this, um, this compilation coming out next year and with that is a booklet... And it will go through from the indie times to um, galore, and there's some and radio sessions and things. So, I've I've just recently been going over all that and having to remember things about it and things. And yes, so yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's yeah. I mean, I, I guess you try. You know, you, it's nice to put the story of it together. You know, and that's and that's what's been done. I guess. Yeah, well, I, I can imagine. And also, because there's been a lot of those kind of festivals, or weekend festivals, not necessarily in, in fields, but sort of, I don't know, holiday camps. Have you done any of those kind of shine weekends? Oh, we did, we've done shine a couple of times, yeah. Yeah, and what's it like when you sort of bump into bands that you probably never spoke to at the time? Because there was, you know, no one wants to admit there's rivalry, but now you look back and go, oh, yeah, we, were, we didn't want to know them. But then, but then when you bump into other people and you think, gosh, we were around at the same time, do you sort of swap stories and sort of not reminisce, but just kind of talk about how you coped with that kind of interest and time of, um, kind of indie pop stardom? Um, well, when we played Shine last, we were on with the straight after the Darling Buds. And... Um, did meet them back in the day briefly then sort of did and spoke to them at uh, Minehead as well. Yeah, it's all quite friendly these days. There's no rivalry or anything. It's, um, you know, you feel a kind of an affinity, I guess, because you, you went through a similar thing at a time and now you're doing a similar thing now, so. Yes. Well, I'd sort of noticed with those kind of weekends and there seems to be a few popping up here and there that, that it must be quite interesting when people sort of... Um, I, yeah, must you know, with age and you know, you've sort of had to deal probably with various things with you know, like your own health, your parents' health, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the ups yeah. and downs of life that you. you the difference sort of, that I'm back then, you would just care for your kids and that, and pleasing yourself. Obviously, as you say, you you know, you've got your families and older parents and deaths and you know all this stuff to deal with so yeah it's uh, yeah it's a totally different world. And just lastly, what would you kind of say to your younger self and when I say that I mean you know what what sort of wisdom wisdom that you've picked up you know over the years that you think god that was one thing that I really did learn 
being on this earth, being on this planet. You know, you know, just I know sometimes people say, what do you, do you mean my 18-year-old self now or back then? But just something that you think, God, I wished I had known that when I was starting out, but you only learned that from being alive. Yeah, I don't know, maybe um, you are the idiot you imagine you are, but no one cares. <laughs> just get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And did you manage to navigate that world that is publishing and sort of ownership of music? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was odd at first because um, I didn't really understand it. But, um, yeah, I used to get sent these um, things through the post when we'd split up, saying, this is how much money the songs have made, but I wasn't getting any of it because they had to recoup. So it's like, oh, well, thanks. That's nice to know. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, but, you know, at some point in the future after that, it did, uh, you know, they, they started paying out. But, uh, yeah, it's... it's uh, it's a complicated old thing, to be sure. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think nowadays, you know, you can go on the internet and get your head around it. But yeah, it's um, it's a bit kind of a. We were sort of led through it without really understanding it back then. Well, I know. And doing your own record label, you must have had to learn a few, not tricks, but something. I know talking to Claire from Sarah Records, where she, you know, said they just didn't even know anything. Just had to ask everybody, and that was running a small cult record labels yeah yeah so i just could imagine it would be kind of tricky and sort of doing the right thing and getting yes getting we didn't have a massive um hand in the in the record label it was our manager sort of ran that yeah but i can remember um this graphic designer showing me the cover of stop killing me the third single and explaining you know it's this and it's that and thinking what are you telling me i'm just a guitarist (laughs) i didn't sort of think i should have a hand in you know we should really sort of like think about our covers and someone else does that, you know. Whereas you look at, um, obviously, the Smiths, you know, they were Morrissey very much, you know, right there with what, what the, uh, how it's going to be presented yes. graphically and things. Whereas, you know, I did, I never, it never occurred to me back then that that was something that we should uh, even think about, you know, so. Because you did have quite a image, though, didn't you? I mean, as a band... Was that I kind guess of? So, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of accidental. I mean, this is another thing that I didn't realise till years later that, um, you know, all your favourite bands that seem to have their image sewn up and that, they've sat around and talked about it, you know, and discussed it. But I thought that people just kind of got together because they had similar outlooks and tastes and so it would always be a natural thing, you know. But, yeah, maybe it was with us, I don't know. Yeah. And when I look at, you know, like Spotify, the primitives, you still get a huge monthly listeners, you know. Yeah. And that must feel fantastic that, you know, people. there's so many people out there still playing the music. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's mostly Crash, obviously, but um, it's interesting that the, um, I think the third and fourth song are the recent ones that we've done, so. Yeah. It's nice that that's, that's there. I noticed that as well. I was thinking, yeah. you know... There's old farts like me who just remember the old days and want to relive yeah. the 80s. But yeah. but I did enjoy, I have to say, I did love the single, you know, Spinorama. I thought that, yeah. that still yeah. had the energy and the excitement of yeah. pure indie pop. So you must have been delighted when you, you know, when you heard, the, heard that sort of in the studio, thinking, yes, we've still got it. Yeah, we were very, very happy with that, yeah. It's a shame we didn't pick up any airplay, but, um, you know, we were... We were, yeah, very pleased with it. 
That's good. Anyway, look, Paul, thank you ever so much. And I'll, I'll tell you when I put this out. And okay, I'll, yeah. And I'll make sure I'll podcast it so you can hear it as well. But that's yeah. fant- been fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, I do remember that night when I came to see you at the, the UEA and it was just absolutely... I think I can remember the gig because we, we played... Is it Norwich you were saying? Yes. Yeah, we played there a um, couple of years ago and I think that was the, only the second time we played there, so... The first time would have been the one you're talking about. I know, and it was just—I mean, you know—I just—I've I, just never sort of been accosted when I got out of the car, not in a nasty yeah. way, but just by somebody who was just like right. desperate for you know. That's when, like, because sometimes yeah. you end up with a spare ticket and you think, "Oh, I'll try and sell it," and there's apps, and, and you're just outside with five other people selling uh, selling spare tickets. Where on that occasion, you know, people were desperate to buy okay. a ticket before you even got out of the car and thinking, Pardon. yeah. But yes, Crash did sort of. It just captured a sort of a moment, really, didn't it? I guess so. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was a good little, good little single. Did you, you know, when you look back on the recording of it, did it come together quickly? Did you think at the time, blimey, we've we've got one here. This is it. We were recording what we thought was our debut album. Um, some of it was actually we remixed it and tidied it up later on a bit but um and then at the same time we were doing crash and kind of changing it and and it was kind of uh it's probably quite cynical actually saying we weren't really schemers i think with that one we were thinking um how can we get a record deal you know so it was kind of we were trying to make a record that could get in the charts yes yeah we, we were going for that you know people yeah. let's try you know let's be the bangles or the go-go's let's kind of do one of those yeah I know. Yeah. Did it was it quite a quick song to both write and record then? Well, it was written um, almost in the first weeks when Tracy joined. Um, very simple song back then, just sort of more like a Ramones kind of thing. Um, and then we we dropped it because we had a lot of those kind of songs. And yeah. then it got resurrected late '87, and we started, you know putting all the jangle on it and stuff, and uh, you know, that's how it ended up. The magic fairy dust. Smell like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I like the trogs. But look, this is great. Well, thank you, Paul. And um, yeah, best of luck for the rest of the year and the, right. and the next decade. Who knows? Yes, yeah, thank you. Okay, then, take care. Cheers, David. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.